Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE and tonight's event is the Department of Management Public Lecture. I'm Barbara Fasolo. I'm Associate Professor in Behavioral Science at the Department of Management, and I'm also the head of a behavioral research lab, which is exactly two floors down in uh, this building. And it's the heart of a growing and developing community of behavioral and decision scientists at the LSE. So it's very exciting for us to have here a decision scientist of the caliber of Dr. Klein. So please join me in welcoming to the LSE Dr. Klein. Um, so this is Gary's first time at the LSE. Uh, but actually, LSE is featured a lot in his book, uh, page 17, chapter 2. He talks a lot about not just LSE, but one of the founders of the LSE, Graham Wallace. He was a psychologist, um, like Gary and actually myself, and he was the first to develop and propose a psychological account of how insights work. So this is a place to be, to hear this talk. And I think one of the main lessons of tonight would be to see to what extent can we still believe in that model, or perhaps we want to expand it in light of all the research that um, Gary has done. Um, as I said, he's a psychologist by training, um, but he's worked in a very diverse mix of uh, settings, from academia to the US Air Force, um, to even the White House, where he was part of a team uh, that was scoped with a redesign of a situation room. And I cannot really imagine any other place on earth that has the largest concentration of time-critical, stressful, under-pressure kind of decision-making. And that already reveals one of the approaches um, that Gary has introduced and given to the science of, of, of decision-making and research in decision-making, which is called naturalistic decision-making. He doesn't shy away from the lab. He just goes and studies decisions that are made under stress, uh, difficult situations, vague objectives, high stakes, life or death. And that's really something to, um, in a, that I always find very inspiring and um, it's really very brave. There's also something else which is special about this approach. Um, but his, uh, he, his aim is not just to reveal uh, the difficulty we have, the challenges we have when we are in tough situations and challenging and stressed, but he really, his research shows how incredibly capable we are and how good we are, experienced decision makers are in, in uh, toughening those decisions. And that might be by itself an insight for maybe those of us who just know about one aspect of, of decision science which might have been um, known or, or renowned with um, Kahneman and, and thinking fast and slow and the heuristics and biases approach. This is a very positive approach. And, um, and that also is a connection uh, with the work we do here at the LSE and, and in, in, in our team. Connection, by the way, is a key word in the book. It's one of the pathways to get, to get insight. So I'll just prime you there. Um, as, as we too, we're really quite keen in, in finding out the conditions and when is it that um, our decision capability can, can be improved, how our happiness can be improved, well-being. 
and, and that's really a leitmotif across many of us, uh, many of us here. Here we have Larry Phillips, who's a colleague in the Department of Management, who's, who really believes in the uh, and has been practicing in action um, how to improve decision capability in teams, in organizations, um, and as well as individuals. So um, that's really exciting. Even more to have you here. That's the right place for you to be here. Um, really, at this point, I'd like to turn the mic to, uh, to Gary. Let me just remind you of a, of a timetable. Um, Gary will take roughly about 45 minutes um, to go through the talk. Then we'll have Q&A till about till 8. Uh, at, at that point, you'll be on stage to sign, um, this is my phone ring, uh, to sign books, which are for sale outside. The event is being recorded, uh, which means that please let's put our phones on silent. Uh, if you, um, this would be probably be made available as a podcast if uh, all goes well and there's no technological failure. Um, and if you are a heavy-duty Twitter, uh, by all means do. But the, the hashtag is um, hash LSE insights. Um, with that, I'd like to leave a microphone to Dr. Clients, who's going to be talking to us about seeing what others don't, the remarkable ways we gain insights. Thank you for joining us. So um, I'm going to talk about the research that I've been doing for the last several years on the nature of insight where that research came from, and describe some aspects of it. But first I want to build on some of the comments that Barbara made about the tradition that I represent. It's a tradition of naturalistic decision-making. And naturalistic decision-making is the idea that we can study how people make decisions, but not just make decisions, how people can make sense of events, how they can plan uh, in, in natural settings rather than laboratory settings. These are messy settings, so the studies aren't as aren't nicely controlled and we, we don't have everything worked out and, and stimuli carefully calibrated um, because we can't. These are the settings that people work. We study firefighters, we study nurses, uh, populations like that. And as, as Barbara pointed out, we're looking at time pressure. We're looking at factors you can't include in a laboratory like high stakes. It's hard to have multiple players. It's very difficult to arrange that in a laboratory yet most people work in environments where there are multiple players organizational constraints. You have vague goals, which are difficult to do research with because you want to know what's the right answer, but in the real world, and, uh, we don't know that there's a right answer. We may never know that, uh, what, what a right answer is, and yet we have to function under that kind of uncertainty. And there's the factor of experience. In laboratories, they try to control experience carefully because experience adds error variance. And so if you have people with more and less experience on a task, it creates variability, which makes it harder to get significant results. Yet, in real-world situations, we don't give authority to people who don't have experience. And so uh, part of the, uh, one of the things that interests us is how does experience come into play? If you're interested in naturalistic decision-making, is, is Julie Gore here by any chance? Uh, Julie Gore said she might come. She is one of the editors, um, and, and, uh, and there are maybe some, some others involved, 
of an, a volume on the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology. It's a special issue on applications of, of naturalistic decision making, and it's just coming out. So if you're interested in NDM, you might try to look that up. And if you're interested in naturalistic decision making, sorry about Bar- this, Barbara. There's a, the next conference. We have conferences in it every two years. The last one was in Marseille in 2013. The next one is going to be in June in Washington, D.C. So if anyone, any of you find yourselves in Washington and wants to know more about the NDM community, this is your opportunity. So uh, this is my tradition. And um, one of the topics I study is decision-making. How do people actually make decisions? I study sense-making. And in 2009... I started to study the nature of insight, and here's how that happened. Up to that point, I had not been paying much attention to insight. But in talks that I gave, I would include a slide. And this was a slide. And I, the slide was a very simple one. And I would say, you know, this is very few words, very easy to remember. What is there? Four words, not, not hard to, to remember. And there's two arrows. And the slide says is if you want to improve your performance, There's something you have to reduce. That's the down arrow. Errors. You want to cut down on errors. Okay? To come up with better performance, you want fewer errors. No arguments about that. But that's not enough. There's something else you want to increase, and that's the up arrow. And what do you want to increase? You want to increase insights. You want to make discoveries. And you need to do both, and it's a balancing act between the two. And the problem is, most organizations only know about the down arrow. They have controls, and we'll talk about that later, about ways to reduce errors. And that's their preoccupation, and I'll describe why, why that's happened. And they have ways of doing that. And if you ask them, as I have asked them, what do you do about the up arrow? They give you a blank look. Or some of them will say, we put inspirational posters on the wall. That doesn't strike me as a really strong strategy. They haven't even thought about the up arrow. And when I would give this talk in various audiences, many people would would say, "Um, my organization that I work in, you're exactly right, we're all about the down arrow. We're all about cutting down errors. And I'd say, ah, good, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I'm not glad to hear it, but I'm glad to get the affirmation. Then they would say, what can you tell us about the up arrow? What can you tell us about insights? And I had a simple answer. And the answer was nothing. I didn't know anything about insights. And that often made people laugh because they thought that was amusing. And I was happy to make people laugh because that's, you know, it sort of is, is exciting. But they were sort of laughing at me. And so it wasn't cruel laughter. But I sort of felt like an idiot because I should know something about the up arrow. And one day after giving, this happened to me after I gave a presentation in Singapore. So I had a long time to fly from Singapore to the United States. I had a 17-hour flight. And mulling it over for 17 hours, I said, you know, I should do something about the up arrow. I should investigate what's the nature of insight. I don't know anything about it, so I'm just going to see what I can discover about insights. And as it happened, I had been collecting a stack of insights because I'd been cutting out articles from uh, newspapers and magazines. There were books that would have little things that interested me, and I'd maybe copy those and put that in the stack, which turned out I hadn't realized it at the time. They just looked like stories that, that intrigued me. They were stories of insight. 
but I wasn't thinking about them that way at the time. They were just stories that, made, that I enjoyed because they were stories of people succeeding, making discoveries, and who can resist that? So this stack was growing. When I got back to the United States, I said, where's that stack? Let me find that stack of, of, of material, let me add to it, and let me do a research project, not a formal controlled research project. Let me go through those incidents and see if I can come up with what the strategy is that people are using to come up with, to, to generate insights. And so I had 120 examples of insights, and I categorized them, I, I, I listed them all, I described them in a page or two, what the insights were, where they came from, the nature of the insights, how they arose. And so I was doing it in, 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 in a somewhat uh, organized fashion, organized for me, which is not very organized. And so I was sort of working that out, trying to come up with a strategy for, for, for what uh, people were coming up with. And uh, I was also looking a little around, and I found that there are certainly people who've worked on the area of insight, and there are certain beliefs that people hold about the nature of insight. For example, um, we know that uh, insights emerge by you, you run into an, an impasse, you struggle, you let your minds wander, that's the, that's the period of incubation, and suddenly there's a flash, a flash of, of, of illumination. And we've known this for a while. This is the, the insight of, of Graham Wallace. And so, we, you know, he, he's got a model about this. Um, we know that the problem with insights is when we have a flawed belief or a flawed assumption. Or, and to correct that, a way of correcting that is to use critical thinking, to try to identify, look over our assumptions and see which one is the flawed one. And organizations we know are very interested in insights and do what they can to promote it. So these are some of the beliefs that I encountered. And then I did my research. And I encountered some of these as I was doing research. And as a result of my research, I don't believe any of these. I've given up all of these beliefs. Some of them are just part of the truth, and some of them are simply misguided and, and, and sort of wrong. And so I'm going to try to explain what's wrong with these beliefs. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, one of them I'll, I'm going to mention as, as we go along, but one of them is about, um, no, I'll, I'll hit all of them as we go along. So you'll see uh, for yourself whether you, you, you still hold these, or maybe you never held them, which would be wonderful if, 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 if you were looking at them saying, what's wrong with it? None of these make sense. But we'll see what's wrong with them. All right, so the first mystery I investigated, where do insights come from? That's what I wanted to understand. And I went around, and so what do I, I, I didn't define an insight at the beginning, I defined it sort of later on, I, towards the end of the project, I realized an insight is an unexpected shift in the way we understand things. You move from one story to another, one mental model, which is a set of beliefs about how things work, to a different story, a different mental model. And in doing that, some of our original beliefs get ab ab abandoned and rejected, uh, along the way. Um, and so, uh, and, and the shift feels accidental. We, we can't plan it. We can't say, I'm going to have an insight about this work problem tomorrow at noon. So let me just sort of slot out some time so I don't forget it. We, 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 there's nothing we can do to try to force ourselves to have insights that way. Uh, they come without warning, and it's like, wow, why didn't I know that before? And it's sort of exciting when it happens. The new beliefs that we have, the new mental model, usually we adopt it because it feels more accurate. It's a, it's a truer story. It's, it covers more things, so now it gives me a bigger picture. And it's more useful. 
It, it, it's more helpful about things. And people sometimes ask me, what's the difference between an insight and an intuition? Because some of my earlier work with firefighter decision-making was about intuitions. And the way I answered that is we have a repertoire of patterns, and we use those patterns to draw intuitions. We use our experience to say, I've seen that before. I've run into that in the past. And so we have these patterns, and we make a connection, and we say, now I know what to do. So patterns, in, intuition, is how we use the patterns we've built up. Insight is how we develop new patterns. So insight is at the other end of the, of the uh, diagram. It's how we start. It's where new ideas come from. Okay? So now we go to Graham Wallace. The four stages of insight, 1926, uh, Graham Wallace published his book, marvelous book, wonderful exploration, and he came up with these four stages, preparation, incubation, illumination, and then validation. And you will still see this cited today. This is one of the common beliefs that this is the way insights are formed, and it's not wrong, but it's only a part of the story. This is one of the ways. When I coded my 120 examples, this was one of the, the pathways that I found, but only one. And this did not come up as much as some of the others. All right? So that's what's wrong with that first belief, that this is the way insights arise. It's only a part of the story. More, more, the, the most prevalent pathway that I found, and I, worked like, I really worked hard to come up with one explanation, and I couldn't. So I decided there are several different pathways, not just one. So I like the idea that there's at least three different pathways because that gives a nice kind of requisite variability. But I may be fooling myself simply because I failed to come up with one then I'm sort of weaseling out. So I don't know if I'm, I'm weaseling out or just uh, bowing to the inevitable. You can decide for yourself. So let's give you an example of the Graham Wallace type of insight, of the hitting an impasse. How many of you have seen the nine-dot problem? A, a bunch of you. Okay. The nine-dot problem is nine dots, three rows of three. Your job is to connect all those dots with only four lines. You put your pen down and you try to connect the dots with four lines. And if we had more time, I would let you struggle with it. And some of you might get it and some of you would fail because this is a hard problem. How will you get connect these dots with only four lines? And when we give this to, uh, in laboratory uh, situations, I'll tell you what the solution is. The solution is, that's the first line. That's the second line. Oh, all the way out there. That's the third line. And that's the fourth line. All right. So that's the solution. Now, how do you solve the nine-dot problem? What's stopping us from solving the nine-dot problem? We're making two assumptions. And they're flawed assumptions. The first assumption is we have to stay within the, the bounds. We've been taught that since kindergarten. Don't color outside the lines. So we're trying to stay within the bounds, and that's stopping us. The second assumption is that you can only change directions at a dot. Neither of these are part of the description, right? I never made those claims. Yet we trap ourselves with flawed assumptions. So now we go to one of the other beliefs that I'm attacking about critical thinking, that the way to improve performance is to list all your assumptions and examine all of them. 
problem with critical thinking here is that these two assumptions are assumptions that we make unconsciously. If you were going to write down your assumptions, you wouldn't have written down, I have to stay within the, 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 the boundaries, and you wouldn't have written down, I can only change directions on a dot. The assumptions that trap us are the ones that we make unconsciously. We make them without thinking. And so if we make them unconsciously, how could we list them if we were listing our assumptions? And if we could list them, then we would have solved the problem. So the critical thinking idea, which seems so reasonable, turns out not to be reasonable because the most pernicious assumptions are ones that are so natural to us we don't even give them a second thought. All right. Here's the model I came up with for how we, come, how we generate insights. This impasse approach, this pathway that Graham Wallace described is on the right. I'm calling it a creative desperation path. You know that there's something that's getting in your way. You don't know what it is. You're looking for assumptions you're making, and you don't know what they are, and you're trying to find them so you can get rid of them. And when you find them, you, you discard the, these anchors, these beliefs that are anchoring your understanding and your mental model. You discard it and say, I don't have to stay within the dots. I don't have to uh, only turn on a dot. And then you come up with the insight, which is a change in how you understand things. Insights change how we understand, but they also change other things. They change how we act. When we have an insight, we sometimes realize, I can do things in a way that I haven't done before. I have a wider scope of action. I have more uh, possibilities than I imagined. They change how we see because insights tell us things are important that we were ignoring before. And so we start to notice them. They change how we feel. Things that we were um, just sort of taking for granted now excite us or frighten us based on the insight we've had. And they change what we desire. They change our goals. Now we realize I can try for something else that I didn't try for before. This is one of the paths. The most common path was in the middle, the connection path, where you put things together and you come up with something new. And the prime example of this would be Darwin. So Darwin had his observation about different species and that there were different islands, different species of birds and finches and things like that. And he had all these wonderful observations about, uh, about how things uh, varied and, and, and how there was a continuity uh, or a discontinuity. And then he's reading a book late in, in, in his investigation, and he'd been sitting on this research for a few decades. And he's reading Malthus, and Malthus is talking about competition for scarce resources. And it hits Darwin. That's the engine of evolution, a competition for scarce resources. And so if you have all this variability, that's why some versions uh, continue and, and others may die out. And so now he had a theory of evolution. He later added sexual selection. He wasn't the first one to read Malthus. He read the sixth edition. But he read it with his background, with the Beagle Voyages, and he made the connection. And he saw something new that people hadn't appreciated before. That's the most common form of insight, I found, is people making connections and making them often accidentally, without planning to, without deliberately trying to do it, seeing the implications. And so what happens there is you spot an implication, now you're adding a new belief, a new idea. And you're, it's like a, this is now helping to anchor your mental model, and you're adding it to the mix to change how you understand. 
This is the most common form of insight, at least in the sample. And I did not have a controlled sample. I don't know how you would have a controlled sample. This was an accidental sample, which consisted of stories I enjoyed reading. Okay, not very scientific, but still a lot of fun to read. And I recommend you take up, uh, you, you might do the same. There's a third, a third approach, a third pathway. I'll give you an example. Two policemen, I heard this from an interview we did with, with, uh, on police uh, decision-making. Sitting in a car, stuck in traffic. The guy who told me the story, the officer was driving. His young uh, partner was just sitting in the passenger seat uh, and looked up. There was a new BMW in front of him. The young officer looks ahead, sees the BMW, sees the driver take a drag on a cigarette and flick the ashes. And he says to himself, and he says to, to his partner, he just flipped his ashes. He just ashed his car. Who does that to a new BMW? Does the owner, if you owned a new BMW, are you flicking ashes like that? If you borrowed it from a friend, are you doing that? This doesn't make sense. You pull him over, sure enough, it was a stolen car. All right. So the insight here is that these pieces don't connect. They don't fit together. And this became the third path, because I found examples of this, where the insight was, this story is not going to, uh, uh, to persist. This is not a credible story. So I think this is why the pathways are different, because the middle pathway is how we connect things. The pathway on the left is how we disconnect things, how we realize that they don't fit together. And the pathway on the left, if you come up with a piece of information that contradicts something you believe. What do you do with that information? Most of the time, what you do with that information, if you're like me, is you find some way to explain it away, don't you? Because it's a pain in the neck. It's, getting, it's, it's creating a problem for you, so you want to discard it. You want to hold on to your belief. And most of the time, that makes sense. But if you do that, you don't come up with an insight. You hold on to the beliefs you started with. The only time you come up with an insight is when you look at this, this anomaly, this unexpected piece of data, and you say, that's weird. Let me think about it. If this is true, what does it imply about everything else? And now you set the conditions for forming an insight, for realizing that you can have a new mental model for thinking about things. And so what you're doing here is you're taking this anomaly seriously, taking this weak observation seriously and trying to build a new mental model around it. The pathway on the right is one where you're looking for something you can discard. Instead of building a mental model around it, you're saying, what belief that I hold can I get rid of? So that's why these feel like three different paths. Let me give you a story, an example of an insight. This is one of the most successful um, devices ever marketed in the United States. It's the Xerox 914, 914 copier. Do you know why they called it the 914 copier? It's because the original size of the pages that they copied was 9 inch by 14 inches. They didn't go through 914 different variations. And uh, the person who uh, came up with this, uh, who headed the team, headed the company, is a man named Joe Wilson. 
And Joe invented uh, and inherited a company from his father, and they made special kinds of paper. They were located near Rochester, New York. A uh, big client was Eastman Kodak. And they made this paper. They had a, a, a successful business. It's after World War II, Wilson inherits it from his father. He knows all the people who are working there. He feels loyal to them. He looks at what's going to happen with the, the margins and the, the, the cost of, of, of labor and everything. And he says, we're not going to be able to compete in the world market. This company is going to fail. I need a new product. What's it going to be? He doesn't know. He goes around. He looks around to see if he can find some idea for a new product. He hears about this technique called dry xerography, and he's intrigued by it. So he obtains the rights to it. But it hasn't turned into a real technology yet. But he has the rights, and he has this business plan, his goal. They don't know about building machines. That's not what, what his company did. He said, but we'll, we have the rights, we'll perfect it, we'll design the machine, and then we'll license it to IBM or A.B. Dick or one of the other big companies, and that's how we'll be able to persist. So he's delighted. He makes this business plan. They, they perfect the technique. He's got everything. He shows it off. No one is interested. No one, they say that there's no market for it. They had market researchers do an investigation, and they said you'll only sell a, 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 couple, of, a couple of thousand at most. Of course, who needs it? We have techniques for making cheap copies. Most of you have never seen this, probably never heard of it. There's an old technique they, they, uh, called a mimeograph machine. And I know I'm pushing the boundaries here. And a mimeograph machine where you can make 10, 20 copies. I mean, a mimeograph machine costs about $250, and you put it on your desk. This new machine that, that they, they had designed cost $2,500. And it was as big as a desk. To do the same thing as I could do with a mimeograph machine, there's no business case there. So nobody wanted to, uh, to, to license the rights and buy the rights from him. So he said, ah, oh, that's not good. That's not good at all. Maybe we, we've invested this money and this is going to be the end of the company. Maybe we have to manufacture it ourselves. And they didn't know anything about manufacturing machines. We'll manufacture the machines and we'll lease it to our customers. Because if they're not going to buy it, we can lease it to them. And somebody said, there's no business case for that. It's too expensive. You're not going to make your money back. So they had a few prototypes out. They said, let's call the prototypes back. And they sent the business uh, representatives, the marketing representatives out. And they said, those offices where we put those prototypes, tell them we're bringing them back. And, and, and we're going we're to circle the wagons and see what we do next. So the marketing reps come in and said, you know, you're lucky I made it here. And they said, what do you mean? This office where I told them we were taking the machine out, they almost shot me. They said, how are you going to take our machine out? We need this machine. Oh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, I, the only way I could take it out was by lying to them. I said, you'll get it back. We just want to uh, do some sort of overhaul. And so that was the only way that, that they let me remove the machine. And another one said, you know, these offices, they don't know how many copies they're making. They're making lots and lots. They can copy anything. You don't have to make it, put it on a zero, on a mimeograph form. You can copy a magazine article, a photograph, anything you want. They're making lots of copies, and they don't know how many they're making. And all of a sudden, the idea hit them for a third business model. We're not going to sell the machine, and we're not going to lease it for so much money that nobody will want to try. We're not going to make money from the machines. 
we're going to make money from the copies. We're going to arrange it so that um, it's real easy for get people to get the machines. We're going to only charge them $95 a month. And if you don't like that, you can cancel after 15 days. And people want, you know, the, the financial people said, that's crazy. And they said, we just want them to use the machines. And we're going to monitor how many copies they make. And we're going to charge them a nickel a copy. Who could resist a nickel a copy? And they said, okay, let's give it a shot. Within a year or two, the average Xerox machine was being used to make 10,000 copies a month. These people were making a fortune. And, and, and some of their customers would say, can we buy the Xerox? And then, no, 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 we're not going to let you buy it. Because the purpose was not to make money from the machines. The purpose was to get all of us addicted to cheap Xerox copies. And it's done a marvelous job. So we have this addiction, and so they, they, they switched. And so this is an example of an insight where they gave up their original beliefs, their original business model. There were contradictions, namely IBM and AB Dick didn't want to uh, buy it, so that really chilled them. There were some connections. The, the, the marketing reps came back and said, people don't know how many copies they're making. They'll go for this deal because they don't know how much it's going to cost them. And it was a lot of creative desperation, we got to find something because otherwise we're going to go bankrupt. So I love this example. All right, so those are the three paths. That sort of addresses the first mystery, where do insights come from? The second mystery that I came up with when I did the research is why do organizations fear insights? What scares them? Because organizations don't tell you that. Here's what organizations tell you. They tell you, we want to innovate. We want to be creative. We want to encourage our people to come up with new ideas. Organizations tell the world that. You'll see all their advertisements. We're the company that promotes innovation. They tell their workers that. They believe it themselves. They're not lying. They're just deluding themselves. They're not acting that way. So why not? What's getting in the way? Back to this diagram. Organizations are into the down arrow. To make an organization work, you've got to reduce errors. You've got to cut down on errors, and also you have to cut down on uncertainty. And that's the way managers work, to be able to do their job in a smooth fashion without perturbations. If you make an error, what happens? People see it. They get mad at you. You get fired. If you miss an insight, Nobody knows. So who cares? And you don't even know how to promote insights, so you don't even know what you would try to do. So we know ways of reducing mistakes. Give people procedures to follow. Monitor their performance. Set out clear standards. Critical thinking. Have them document their assumptions. All of those things, those are techniques for reducing errors. They're not bad ideas. I mean, a, a great book is Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. Checklists used appropriately are powerful tools. I'm not saying ignore errors. I'm not saying that. I'm saying try to create a balance. So you've got these ways that we have for reducing mistakes. Problem is, if you go too far in reducing mistakes, you get in the way of insights. You track historical trends, so you look like you're doing a scientific job. You miss changes in those trends, sudden changes in conditions that make the trends obsolete. You're distracted. You're spending all your time justifying your conclusions. You're spending all your time trying to um, document what assumptions you're making. 
This is true uh, in industry. It's true in many kinds of environments. Um, it's true in universities. It's true in scientific environments. Uh, if you're given an, if I'm given an article to review, or if any researcher is given an article to review, how do we review the article? Here's what I do, when I, and I try not to. I get the article, I sort of skim the abstract, and then I go to the method section to see did they make any mistakes, in any, any weaknesses in their methodology. And then I look at the results section. Did they analyze the data correctly using the appropriate statistical techniques, or is there another technique they should have used? And I'm looking for reasons to reject the article. Are there any flaws? I'm looking for the down arrow. And I'm not... And I tr I'm trying to overcome this in myself because I only do reviews that I sign. So that I'm hoping that will keep me honest. I'm not sure it does, but I'm trying. I'm not saying, what's exciting about this? Even if the study is flawed, could it be exciting and useful? And even if everything isn't perfectly pinned down, it may still be worth disseminating. We don't do that. So our, we're distracted. We're looking at mistakes. And the, a third problem is it makes us passive. It makes people think that their job is not to make errors, rather than their job is to come up with discoveries and to create uh, new innovations. And we hear this in the intelligence community. I've had people say, um, I was told when I started out as a junior analyst, follow tradecraft. And if you get it wrong, as long as you follow tradecraft, nobody can blame you. And I said, you know, there's got to be more than just not getting blamed. There's got to be something like finding out things that other people should know. And the analyst said, yeah, the only useful discoveries I ever made are when I violated tradecraft. So uh, the advice actually works in the opposite direction. So I'm not, happy. I'm not saying we should uh, ignore mistakes. I'm saying if we put too much emphasis on reducing mistakes, that can get in the way of insights. Why do organizations fear insights? Because insights are disruptive. They are disorganizing. They change the smooth running of an organizational entity. We don't trust creativity. Uh, Mueller et al. a few years ago did a study where they said, here's some ideas, and some of them were labeled as creative ideas. And they wanted to see people's reaction when they saw that it was labeled as a creative idea. And the reaction was, oh, so it's probably, it could be, well be wrong, or I better not trust it. People have a negative reaction to a creative idea that is not proven. All right, and there's a, a saying that uh, I encounter sometimes in industry, the pioneers get the arrows. The settlers get the land. Okay, so what that means is don't be the first. Let other people get shot down, and then you can, you can sweep in and, and, and try to follow on. Organizations fear insight because they depend on predictability. If I'm a manager in an organization, I want the plan to go smoothly. That makes my job easier, and it makes me look good, and I can manage effectively. Insights aren't like that. They're not predictable. They come without warning. They take forms you don't expect, open up opportunities you couldn't imagine. That's the opposite of being predictable. Organizations fear insight because of perfection. They don't want errors. They, they, they're worried, more worried about making errors than they are about coming up with discoveries. If you're going to make a statement about something, most people would prefer to have a statement that was accurate 
than a statement that had a high information value. What, are the mo- what kind of statements could you make that would never be wrong? They tend to be really vacuous statements that nobody could ever contradict. Not a high information value. Organizations fear insight because they create effort. If they, they, call, they require you to change the way you're doing business, and that's more work for a manager who's already overburdened. And organizations fear insight because they fix, uh, their managers fixate on goals. That's how they got promoted. You, I'm a manager. You've given me a task. You've told me what the goal is. I'm going to deliver it for you. I'm not going to come back in, th- in two months and question the goal and say, I think we're going in the wrong direction. If I go back to my superior and say, I, th- I, don't, I, think, I think that your, your original idea was kind of dumb. I mean, you don't have to say it that way, but just you, you can say it in a kind way. I think I've learned something about what we should be doing. Well, wait a second. Some costs. We've spent all this time and energy going in this other direction. How can we just change direction? And so people who get promoted are the ones who persist, <clears throat> dig down, try to follow the original goal. And then when, as they move up, they start to encounter wicked problems, which are ill-defined goals, and they're not equipped to change the goals and revise it. Sengupta did this study, a simulation study, uh, published in Harvard Business Review, gave managers uh, an initial goal, created conditions where that goal became obsolete. Did they change their goals? No, they didn't. They persisted. They held on to the original goal. All right. Third mystery. How can we come up with more insights? What can we do? Uh, I want to lower expectations here. I don't have any great ideas. Okay. <laughs> it's not like here's five steps and you can be guaranteed of coming up with world-shaking insights. I don't have that. It's not gonna, we're not going to get there. I'm going to make a small effort, but it's pretty small. First thing we can do is we can help people who work for us who may have flawed mental models, we can help them come up with insights. And we've developed a technique for this. It's called a shadow box method. We, we didn't develop it. We heard about it. A New York Fire Department uh, friend of mine, Neil Heinz, developed it as a way of handling unexpected events. And the idea of the shadow box method is it's a scenario-based method, and it lets you see the world through the eyes of an expert without the expert being there, because that's always a bottleneck, having to have experts there. There aren't that many experts, and they're not readily available. And so what Neil did is he had these scenarios, and he interrupted the scenarios, stop action right now in the middle of scenario, here's four options. Which one do you pick? Rank them, and write down your reasons for why you ranked it that way. And then you might go a little bit more and then say, wait, stop right now. What are your priorities? Here's three priorities. Rank them and tell me, write down your rationale why you rank them that way. Or you go a little bit further. Here's six different cues. Which ones are you going to monitor most carefully? Rank them in terms of your importance and tell me, and write down why. And then, after you do the ranking, you write down your reason. Then you get to see what a panel of experts did, because they went through the same scenario and went through the same exercise. And you see the rankings that the experts had. And you're saying, I hope they ranked them the way I did, and they usually don't. And then you get to see what, were their, what was their rationale, because the you, you, uh, uh, training developers combine the rationale and, and, and say, here is a synthesis of their rationale. And you look at what they were noticing, what they were responding to, and you say, gosh, they were thinking about this. I wasn't even paying attention to that. 
And so that's how you're seeing the world through the eyes of the expert as you go through the scenario. And the experts aren't there. Their responses are there, but they're not there. Okay? That's about helping other people gain insights. What about helping ourselves gain insights? Fortunately, there's a bunch of advice that you can find in the literature about things you can do to gain insights. You can increase swirl, expose yourself to more different ideas. You can try to foster disruptive thinking. You can say, let me try to shake up my own thinking. Let me try to revamp it. You can try to encourage failures because we learn so much from failures. So let me, take, uh, let me, let me try to try something that's likely to fail just to see what happens. Or you can try to get into a meditative state of mind, create an open mind so that the insights can bubble up from your subconscious and you can be aware of them. So these are the kinds of advice that you'll find in the popular literature. I find all of this type of advice pretty useless. So um, here's what I think is wrong with these kinds of advice. Increasing swirl, exposure to ideas, that's the connection path. What happens is people remember a time when they were in a coffee shop and they overheard something and that sparked something and they say, okay, uh, I, I need to, to do more of that. But how many times, how many hours did they spend in coffee shops when they walked out and all they had was a caffeine buzz? They forget about that. So this is like backwards thinking. Yeah, it happened to me once and if I can cre recreate those conditions. Somebody else said, I get a lot of my insights when I'm in the shower. Okay, so... If he took twice as many showers, would he have twice as many insights? I don't think so. So I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence that increasing swirl accomplishes anything. Maybe the evidence is there. I haven't seen it. Foster disruptive thinking, that's Clayton Christensen and the idea of disruptive thinking. And people take it seriously and try to uh, uh, periodically try to have disruptive thinking. Insights don't work like that. You can't schedule insights. You can't say, okay, uh, next week is disruptive thinking week and let's try to think disruptively and then we'll have... It doesn't work like that. Um, another problem with increasing swirl, there, there may be connections you can make, but there's also a lot of stupid connections you make, and you still have the burden of trying to evaluate all of them, because most of them are stupid, and you've got to be able to overcome that. Encouraging failures, this goes back to Karl Popper, philosophy of science. We learn a lot from failures. I'm not, I'm, certainly I'm aware of that. Emotionally and psychologically, that's not something that we can do easily. We can't, I mean, I don't like to fail. I, I remember vividly all of my failures. I'm not going to go out and say, today seems like a good day to fail. I think we're going to have fun. I'm not, scientists don't do it. Popper was saying we should try to falsify our theories. How many scientists fall, try to falsify their theories? We don't see it. And then increase this quiet, reflective, meditative mood. I just read an, a, a book about that. So I went back, I was curious about it, so I went back to my sample of 120 insights and I tried to see how many occurred when the person said, I am going to calm down, I am going to relax and let the insight bubble up. The answer was zero. Nobody ever did that. It didn't happen. Maybe, there, maybe it's valuable. I'm not saying one way or the other. I haven't seen the evidence. So what can we do? Is there anything we can do? And I have one idea. I don't think it's a very, necessarily a very good idea, and I haven't tested it. And I've just started talking about it in the last couple of weeks. So I, it's not like this is a surefire technique. I'm not saying that. But I'll, I'll expose it. I'll let you know what, what it looks like, and you can judge for yourself. 
the, where the idea came from is I went back into my 120 cases. And I, I did like a, almost, it's not really a controlled study, but I said there were 30 cases where somebody had an insight and there was another person, and I had to be able to identify a specific person who had access to the same information and did not have the insight. Okay, so it was like a, a twin. And then I said, what was the difference between the person who had the insight and the person who didn't? And I identified four factors that differentiated them. The first one was about flawed beliefs. And that was one of the, one of the original uh, um, statements I made at the beginning, that uh, the problem with coming up with insights is flawed beliefs. But what's wrong with that is if you move from mental model one to two, the beliefs you had in mental model one are always flawed, are always incomplete. So that's not the issue. The thing that stopped the people in the other sample is they fixated on the flawed beliefs. They couldn't get past them. Watson and Crick came up with their, their model of DNA. Do you know their original idea for the structure of DNA? They, they named their hypothesis. It was called the triple helix model. It wasn't a triple helix, okay? They were wrong, but they weren't trapped by it. Other people were, they were not. They escaped from that. Second is about experience. In two-thirds of my case, the case is the only way you could have the insight is if you had enough experience like Darwin did that allowed you to see the implications of Malthus's work. Third factor is the people who had the insight were in an active stance. They were sort of more alert. They were looking for things. They, they didn't, I mean, they weren't specifically looking for anything, but they were just aware of things. And the people in the passive stance were just doing their job in a routine fashion, in a mindless fashion. And so they encountered the same data, didn't think twice about it. And the fourth factor was people who didn't have the insight tended to be gripped by concrete thinking. Here's what we've always done. Here's the procedure. Why make waves? Why make problems? The people who had the insight engaged in playful, speculative reasoning, hypothetical reasoning. That doesn't mean we should always engage in hypothetical reasoning. We've all been in meetings where somebody is going crazy with hypothetical reasoning. Well, we could do this. We could. No, no, we have to make a decision. But we have, and I thought, you want to strangle those people. Okay, so I'm not saying that this is something we should always try to do, but there are some people who can almost never do it because that's a sign to them of an immature person. So looking at that, I said, what kind of a strategy could we craft that might help people uh, generate more insights? And the idea I've come up with is the idea of trying to adopt an insight stance, which is an active mindset that's driven by curiosity. It's a stance so that if you see an anomaly, instead of automatically explaining it away, and most of them should be explained away, you give it some more thought. You, th you, you, you sort of wonder. You, maybe, maybe you discard it quickly, but maybe you give it an extra few seconds to imagine what it might mean. You see a contradiction, you wonder what could, it could be about. If you see a connection, you sort of become curious about it, or you see a coincidence, become curious about it. And so that's the kind of stance to try to promote. And for people who become experienced, who, who, who have lots of, lots of time on a, on a job, one of the problems is we get so good, we tend to depend on the beliefs and we assume that we're right. And we, there's a, a possibility of developing cognitive calcification because we can hold on to the beliefs because they've allowed us to be successful. These forces that I've described that drive insight 
may also counter cognitive calcification. The forces that help us become alert to contradictions, that help us notice connections, that help us explore possible weaknesses in our beliefs, those work against calcification, holding on to our original belief set. They allow us to break free from that belief set. I'm not saying we should go too far. We don't want uncontrolled factors here, but we should maybe go a bit far here. How might you do this? Here's four possibilities. One, insights aren't only about theories of evolution or things like that. They happen to us all the time. We should notice them more. Perhaps we can track them and celebrate them more and make it more of a habit. When we make a mistake, it sort of gnaws on us for a while and sort of irritates us. Let's have the same reaction when we have an insight that sort of um, uh, forces us out of our usual way of thinking and congratulate ourselves for being flexible. When we take on a new task, do we still have the same mental model, the same set of beliefs in two months as we did it as we started? If we do, that's probably a bad sign. So maybe we want to track how our thinking has changed and evolved because as you become more expert, it should be evolving. We should be having insights about the way things actually work. If you're a manager, how do we have progress reviews? We bring somebody in and we say, how many of these tasks have you accomplished? Are you on schedule? Are you using resources too quickly or too slowly? Uh, we're looking at those things. That's the way progress reviews are covered. We don't ask the, the, the subordinate, um, what have you learned since the last progress review? What ideas have you had that you've, you, did you used to have that you've let go of? And we may want to ask those questions because we may want to tell subordinates that they should be looking to change their thinking. They should be alert to ways to improve their mental models rather than sticking with the original mental model when they started because they were just starting. So how good could that mental model be? Fourth way is we can use conflicts and confusions as openings for insights. Let me give you an example. I was doing a, a, a presentation to a group of, of high-level high managers, and I was talking about the importance of explaining intent. It's hard to tell people, here's what I want, and have them reliably carry it out. So one, one guy said, I know just what you mean. I recently had that problem. I gave somebody, one of my subordinates, a, a direct order. I, I said, here's what I want. And my, my deputy was there. We, I gave him the order. Off he went. A few days later, I check on it. He totally messed up. He totally went in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, people just don't get it. They don't listen. And I said, he, went in the, he didn't do what you wanted. And the guy said, no, he didn't. And I should have stopped myself. I don't know why I persisted, but I couldn't. And, and, and I asked him, okay, um, did you ask him what he thought you wanted? And the, and, and, the, and the person said, no, why would I do that? Well, of course you would want to do that if you want to see how are people understanding your directives. Maybe his mental model was flawed, and then you can help him correct it. Or maybe the way you gave the direction was more confusing than you realized, and this is a chance for you to learn about your own style. This is confusion is an opportunity to learn rather than an inconvenience. And so instead of dismissing these confusions, maybe we can harvest them. And so the notion here is we can adapt. Insights are basic to adapting, not just to adapt our plans and our behaviors, but adapt our thinking. When I look at the work on behavioral economics and heuristics and biases and approaches like that, 
it's all about reducing errors. It's like, what do you have to do to cut down erroneous thinking? This is basically playing not to lose. I think we can do better than that. By trying to promote insights and discoveries, I think we can play to win. And I hope I've uh, done a little bit to try to convince you of that. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much for um, quite a lot to think about. So can we say that insight is the joy of losing one's safe beliefs? So it's the opposite of loss aversion. So the joy from letting all the past models go, which is kind of counterintuitive because I want to hang on to them. Right. So there is sometimes joy. When we have insights... There's something, I don't know about you, but I experienced something like an inside rush. Like, look at that. I didn't know that before. This is really exciting. So there is a joy to it. Um, but that happens after I have the new idea. Until I have the new idea, I'm not in a joyful place. Right. I'm in a very unsettled and uncomfortable place. I'll have to mull it over, not over Singapore, long, long trip back. But now let's open uh, the floor to, um, for questions. Let's allow the people who need to leave long day. Um, and what we're, we're going to be doing, we're here till 8. If you want to ask a question uh, to Gary, please signal, raise your hand, and we will have uh, the assistants come with a roving mic. It would help us to know your name and your affiliation, um, help Gary. And there's also a roving mic upstairs in the balcony. Exactly. So over there, uh, we will alternate between top and bottom, not just here. Um, we want to have as many questions as possible, so please keep your questions direct and short. And Gary would like one question at a time. Yes. So let's start. Over there. Hi, yes, uh, Adam Harris, UCL. Um, I was just interested in how you see the difference between increasing swirl and increasing experience. It seems like that's quite a subtle distinction. I was wondering if you could uh, clarify that a little bit, please. Okay. I have not been asked that question before, and, and, and it's a good one. So um, the idea of swirl is to just expose yourself to lots of different perspectives. And, and, and different ideas without necessarily diving into any of, the, of them to see what sticks. So there might be something you know, that all of a sudden, I'll give you an example, a, a, a positive example where swirl worked. Uh, and, and this is also from the book. A physiologist from Columbia, Martin Schalfi, um, is studying a physiological response in, in worms, and they're translucent worms, but that's not relevant to his research. So he makes his manipulation, then he chops up the worms, and then they do the assays and, and, and see what they find. And he's, he's successful. Things are going well for him. And he attends a lunchtime seminar. Not because he was, he was interested in the topic, but you're supposed to when, when you're a professor. So he attends this lunchtime seminar, and the, the, the speaker in the middle of the seminar mentions that there are jellyfish that um, have this bioluminescent property. And if you shine light on them, they illuminate with a green light that shines back. And there's a Japanese researcher who has sequenced the DNA of this green fluorescent protein. So everybody else at the lunch is nodding, 
And Shalfi hears this and says, if I shine light on these jellyfish, they will shine a green light back, and I know the DNA. And I'm studying translucent worms. If I can take that DNA and get them into my worms, I can study how their physiological responses are progressing without killing them. And it changed his whole research paradigm. He eventually won a Nobel Prize, okay? That's an example of, in part, swirl, because Chalfi didn't go looking for this piece of, of evidence. He put himself in a position to hear a different idea. But it's also an example of experience, because everybody else in that lunchroom heard the same idea. None, none of the others won a Nobel Prize. Otherwise, that would have been a very famous lunchroom, and they would put a plaque on the wall and put what the date was. So that was a combination of, the, of swirl to hear the new idea, plus the experience to see what the implications were, to have other ideas to connect it to. Okay? Next question. Up on top. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nick Hare. I'm a consultant. Um, one of the, a question I've got really is I'm thinking from the perspective of boring monolithic organisations. Is I mean, is the cost of trying to foster insights, uh, you know, greater than the benefits that they bring? I mean, you, you've shown you know really interesting. Uh, you know, stories about where they come from, but um, are they actually worth it? For most organisations, can they live without them? Say, say that question again. And can organisations, you know, by and large, on average, live without insights? You can know, why should it? they bother trying to, trying to have them? All right. Um, the benefits outweigh the costs of yeah. fostering insight. So I'm thinking back to a slide that I cut out, and I'm now regretting cutting it out. <laughs> so um, for organization, almost all organizations, one of the critical processes is to adapt. Uh, staying rigid in a world that adapts is probably not a good idea. There may be a few pockets where it's possible, but for the most part, uh, the, the companies that haven't adapted haven't continued. What drives adaptation? You have to see, see anomalies in the way you're doing things. That's insights. You're, you, have, you encounter problems, you want to diagnose what's, why is it a problem. That's an insight. You see possibilities and opportunities. That's an insight. So uh, what the slide I, I, that I did not show you said was insights are, are basic to adaptations. Now, and we can have slow adaptations, like evolution, which can take centuries and millennia. Most organizations don't have that much time. So what, we, what organizations need is rapid adaptation, and I think those, I believe those depend on insights. So I think that's why uh, insights are so important to organizations. And then there. The mic is coming to you. 
Uh, hi, uh, I just recently got. Get so can you please tell us you? Okay, uh, I'm Li Jing Shi from LSC. Um, I just actually literally become interested in insights three days ago, so I start to read. And then, what would you say about your theory of insights in um, in relation to other researchers who seem to associate insights with uh, problem solving? Is this just researching the same idea, same uh, concept from different aspects? This is being recorded, is it? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> Until 8 o'clock. It's too bad. So let me tell you how I actually did the research. The way I know you're supposed to do research is you start out by doing a literature review to see what else everybody else has done. I collected uh, over a dozen books and many, many articles on Insight. And I decided not to read any of them. <laughs> and the reason was... I wanted to have a fresh look at insight. I didn't want to be trapped by what other people did. And I don't, this may be, maybe I'm going too far here. This may be true in general that graduate students are always encouraged to read the literature first rather than to study the, observe the phenomenon first and form your own ideas, which may be wrong, which probably will be flawed, but at least you'll have a chance to encounter the phenomenon rather than people's theories about the phenomenon. I don't know. But I, just, I usually do a lit review. For this project, I decided not to. Then I looked at the literature, and I said, thank goodness I didn't look at the literature. <laughs> because the literature is almost all, not all, almost all, in control settings, using only one of those paths, the, the impasse pathway that Graham Wallace had talked about. And Graham Wallace was looking at actual insights. He wasn't trapped by this. But it's easier to study. This is the easiest way to study insights, is you give people a task like the nine-dot problem, and you see if they solve it or not, and then you can try different uh, approaches to try to make it easier or harder for them to solve those kinds of impasse problems. We uh, people who do neuropsych neuropsychology, they want to be able to study brain processes. Well, you can't do brain process, process analysis by having people walk around with an fMRI bolted to their head 24 hours a day for like f a few months until they have insights. You've got to give them a task that will allow them to have insight, which is the impasse problem. So the impasse problem has dominated the research on, uh, on, on, on the nature of insight. And if I had been trapped by that, I would have missed the other pathways. So I'm, I'm glad that, it, that I did not start out with a literature review. Does that answer your question? It answers more than your question. I think you got more than you expected. <laughs> I think in other research fashions, there's something called ground theory. It's more similar to what you have just said. You look at the data first without forming um, something. You know, basically, you look at the data first and then try to gather the themes and then probably the patterns and then theory later. Rather than the other strand, you look at the theory, you design the research, and then you try to find the data to prove that research is right or wrong. It's just a different way or different philosophy of looking at the things, basically. Is this a follow-up question? Uh, I just so let me respond yeah, to that. Yeah. So now we're into the nature of the scientific method. 
<laughs> and so we have to look at what the scientific method is, which is difficult because there's no official scientific method. We've sort of examined what are the, 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 what's the doctrine of the scientific method. And there is no official place where it's, no tablet, stone tablet where it's written down. But generally, what the scientific method is, is, is uh, understood as is um, formulate your question, then observe the phenomenon, then generate your theories, and then test your theories, and then try to generalize the results, okay? I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to be contentious. I, I think most people would agree something like that, maybe not that exactly. So where are the insights in the scientific method? Most of the time when people think of researchers, they're only thinking of the fourth stage. Scientists generate hypotheses and test their hypotheses. They're not thinking about the other stages. To do real science, you're doing hypothesis testing. And then if you're fortunate, your data will come out in the way you were hoping, and then you can publish your data. That's considered a success, right? I, I believe that's considered a success. But where are the insights in the scientific method? Formulating your question. The insights there are coming up with better questions. So that first stage, knowing what to ask, is uh, fraught with insights. Observing the phenomenon, which is what naturalistic decision-making is about. Before we try to test anything, let's try to see what's going on. I had a colleague of mine who was a, a, a famous decision researcher, and we had a chance to go out in the field to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and study tank platoon leaders. We got a chance to ride in the tanks with them and see how they made decisions. And who could resist that? And I said, are you coming? And he said, no, why would I do that? And I said, we can see how they make decisions during these exercises. And he said, but how could we control the stimuli? <laughs> I said, ah, oh, I see what you mean. And he did not come. Okay, so insights arise when you observe the phenomenon. And then when you formulate your theories, and uh, you come up with your ideas and compare them to your data, and it doesn't quite work, you have to change, so insights arise there. And the fifth stage, when you generalize to other cases, and you realize it doesn't quite fit, what's, what's different about this case than my case, then you can realize there's other factors at play than you imagined, and so insights are there. But what happens in the fourth stage? where you generate a hypothesis, test it, and the results come back the way you want it. You haven't learned anything. You haven't made any insights. You haven't changed your thinking. You've confirmed your thinking. So the only place in the scientific method where insights don't arise is in the case where, that we think is prototypical science, testing hypotheses and gathering data uh, we hope will support our hypothesis. In that fourth stage, the only time we have come up with insights is when the results come back and they don't fit our hypothesis. And when that happens, what do we say? Do we say, lucky me? I have never said that. Okay, maybe there are other scientists in the room who do get excited when the results come back and they're crummy results. I have never been exhilarated by that. I become depressed. 
and I know from my experience it's going to take me two or three days to work out the depression. I'm walking around. Why has life treated me so poorly? What, what has gone wrong? Maybe, maybe we analyze the data wrong. Maybe there's something there. And after a few days, it starts to dawn on me. Of course the original hypothesis didn't work. It was kind of shallow. And there's a better way to think about it. And then I can start to, to recover my emotional uh, equanimity. So uh, until that point, and, and I know it's going to take me a few days for, for the depression to lift. But, you know, their insights are possible when the results don't come back the way you expected and you're forced to revise your thinking. Okay? Thank you. I started to feel pretty good about data that didn't turn out this term. So now we have a question there. Thank you. What about upstairs? Oh, and then upstairs. But I had promised her the question before. <laughs> I'll break my word otherwise. Okay, thank you. Um, my name's Jane Cooper. I've been a practical decision maker, and I'm, I'm now a student of organizational social psychology. So thank you very much. Um, and a particular thank you for the title, because that actually uh, was one of one of the management reproaches that drove me towards the course I'm now studying. I was accused of seeing what things that others don't. So thank you. However, my question was, I noticed that you're not mentioning diversity. Do you see any connections? Or alternatively, do you not see any connections? Um, I haven't, it's not part of, my, of, of the research that I did. But I would imagine that diversity of, of ideas and backgrounds and perspectives could be extremely important. I would think so. But I'm not 100% sure. Here's the problem organizationally that I've, I've seen, I've experienced, and I've read about, is there's a coordination cost when you introduce diversity, that people uh, have trouble collaborating, and, and there's, there's often common ground breakdowns where we use terms and we use ideas and think we mean the same thing by them but we don't. So I think the research suggests that diversity does promote innovative thinking. But for managers, it, there's a, a heavy coordination cost and a heavy burden. And so those are the things that usually get traded off. But if you're determined to come up with innovations and insights, yes, a set of, uh, I don't know what dimensions you would choose for diversity, and you could pick those dimensions in different ways. But having these people with the same perspective, they'll have an easier discussion, but it's less likely, I agree with you, that less likely they'll come up with an insight. I agree. Anything else? Bob doesn't raise any hands. You can go here. And James Choi from UCL, and uh, so what do you think is the, the, the weakness or limitation on your theory of the insight, and uh, and how to counter them, or how to, how what is your plan to improve those uh, uh, the weakness or limitation of your theory at the current stage? Right. So you you want me to do what I've claimed can't be done, and to do it in public. On the spot. You already did. I mean, you're kind of. I, I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how delighted I am by that question. 
So what are the weaknesses? And, and, and I, do, I do worry about what are the limitations of, of what I've done. This last, the, almost the last slide that I did about the active stance, that was because I didn't think that I had a good, any good ideas about how to promote insights. I felt that was a, a weakness of my approach. If I knew what I was talking about, I should be able to come up with something that's better. But, and it's only a, a few weeks uh, ago that, 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 that I sort of realized this might be a way forward. So I'm still continuing to work on uh, things that bother me about my model. What bothers me? Now I'm, I'm sort of congratulating myself that I got to the active stance, and you're not letting me bask in that congratulation. You're saying, what's next? What, what should be concerning you? Um, thanks for looking out for my mood. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Um, it, it could be the, the importance of diversity. Now that that's been surfaced, that might be an issue. Um, I talk to organizations that, want, that know that they're trapped by the down arrow. They want to come up with better ideas to shift into a balanced view, not f overly focused on the up arrow. I've come up with some ideas, and so we've had some discussions. I think I can do a better job. I, th I hope to be able to do a better job, but I I'm I'm, I'm haven't gone as far as I would like to. And so that's another place that, that, I, that I think is, is, is weak about my current formulation. Is that enough, or you want me some more flagellation? <laughs> yes, and uh, I hope to see your lecture again in the next years. So now. <laughs> Thank you. I've seen three or four hands on this side, but I don't want to be missing. I don't want to not see something you do see. So are there any hands up here that I can't see? So there's one over there. Okay, we might have to choose now. Am I gonna, I'm going to have one, two, three. Random. Is this just how it is? You're Naturalistic. Three. One, two, three. Just to counterbalance men and women. Uh, so let's go to Larry and then over there. I think I'm going to regret this question. Yes. <laughs> I'm Larry Phillips. I'm a professor here of decision science. I was fascinated by your comment about how you felt very depressed before you had an insight. Uh, I noticed that in your, your th threefold model, you have feelings at the bottom, but not at the top. It sounds to me as though maybe uh, some discomfort, you know, the gut feeling, something, something is, is at the top of your model to stimulate an insight. That's a good point. And in, in general, I, I tend to, um, that's probably a weakness in my thinking. I tend to be focused on cognition rather than emotion. And, I, I, and, and there are some people in the naturalistic decision-making community who are trying to um, do more with, with emotion. But in the model, where I think emotion comes in is the creative desperation path. That's the path where you say, I'm not in a good place. I've got to break free of it. And so that, the emotion is dominant there. Uh, an example, one of my favorite examples, is the Man Gulch incident. And I think it was 1949. So it was a forest fire. 14 smoke jumpers get dropped into Montana. And they're dropped uh, in, in, on the top of a valley where there's a, a fire just starting on the opposite side of the valley. And they're safe. It's, it's on this side of the valley. They're here. They're going to hike down to the Missouri River and then attack the fire from below. Because fire spread rapidly up, uphill, not downhill, so they know they're safe. 
and I actually had a chance to visit Man Gulch, and it's very steep there. I mean, it, it was a great opportunity. So they're hiking down, and midway through their hike, they look, uh, the, the leader, Wagner Dodge, sees that there must have been a stray gust of wind that has brought some embers over to his side of the valley. And it's like over 100 degrees, really dry in August, and he can imagine what's going to happen next. It's going to light all these trees on fire. The fire is going to come roaring up his side of the valley, and it's going to burn them all to a crisp. And he sees that as the fire is just starting. Talk about emotion. His emotion was stark terror. And he tells his, men, his crew, drop your tools, run for your lives. They are running for their lives. If you want an account of this, Norman McLean wrote a book, Young Men in Fire, about this incident. They are running for their lives. Dodge looks back. They're not going to make it. I told you, I, 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 was, uh, I visited there. It's really steep. Running isn't going to do it. The fire is catching up to them. It's a minute behind them. Two of them actually did manage to, 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 to outrun it. All the others, except Wagner Dodge, did die. They got burned up. Wagner Dodge saying, what fire? fire? I'm going to be destroyed by fire. And as he's running, he has this idea. He says, fire is my, my problem here, but I can use fire. And he sets an escape fire in front of him to burn the vegetation uphill from where he's running. And so he sets the escape fire, eliminates the fuel, dives in the ashes, and his, and his life is saved. Okay? So, is that enough emotion? Are you sad about So, there's a question over there. And when, and we, the last when people question. talk about incubation, there was no incubation during the. <laughs> <laughs> this was on the spot. No. Sabina Stork, I run a small market research agency. Um, over the last 10 years or so, quite a few corporate market research departments have been rebranded Insight or Consumer Insight. Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, plain pretentious? What's your take on that? Yeah. Behavior Insight. That's a personally relevant question because um, my older daughter, who's a cognitive psychologist, once worked for a company that was called Insight. So... I have no branding rights to insight. It bothers me a little to see the term tossed out so loosely. I think it, it devalues the term because everybody talks about insights. So it, it does bother me. But there's, um, I, I can't say only use insights in these kinds of conditions where you've given up ideas. I wish people would stop, but it, uh, it's an attractive term. It sounds like a good thing. Uh, we're, we're stuck with it. Thank you for noticing that we're working against the tide there. Most companies that talk about insights aren't, don't mean what I'm talking about. They mean using big data or they, they have various ideas about how to provide additional information or how to squeeze or how to get more value for, for their customers. But it's not about changing people's thinking. Great. We'll have a last question. So, Gary, you mentioned... Um, Who are you, though? Ah, sorry, <laughs> Mark Random, a consultant. You mentioned the nine-dot problem, and that's a nice, easy problem to define, to measure success in insightfulness in solving it. How should we approach measuring insightfulness in real-world problems? There's always a question that you sort of wish it ended a few minutes earlier. <laughs> well, you have one minute, so... How can you measure insight in real-world problems? Okay. Um, 
I actually am not sure that it's that hard. When Watson and, when, when Watson and Crick saw what happened when, when Watson was moving those pieces together, two-dimensional pieces, immediately it solved eight different puzzles that they had, eight different questions. And he said, I have a better model. And, uh, and, and Crick said, this is too beautiful not to be true. So we're, we're, we're struck by the superiority of insight, of, insight, of mental model two, of the new set of ideas compared to the old ideas. So there needs to be a sharp differentiation. Here's what we used to believe. Here's what our, really, our, our assumptions used to be. And here's what they are now. And so the, uh, to, to call something an insight, there has to be that kind of sharp change. And I would say it has to come out, come unexpectedly. That doesn't mean haphazardly. In about 80% of my sample, people were deliberately trying to come up with a better idea, but they didn't know what it would be, and they didn't know when the, if they would have it and when it would arise. So I would, I would start to use those criteria. For, uh, for myself, how do I know that I've had an insight? I mean, I get excited by the new idea and how good it is. But to be honest with you, I get excited about a lot of stupid ideas that I have, and then a day or two later I realize that they're really dumb. So I know that the excitement isn't a good clue. Um, if I don't get excited, probably not a great idea. Just because I'm excited, I may be fooling myself. But I can look at the things, I can look back and say, how did I ever believe that? I can look at the beliefs that, I, that I've abandoned and see what's wrong with them. And so, I, uh, so that's something that, that's not, I mean, that's the emotional part is the excitement part, but that's not, the excitement isn't enough. For me, it has to be this new idea is um, it's superseding something that I can't believe I ever thought that. And when I, when, 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 when I uh, appreciate that and I say, okay, I've had an insight, it may be a major one, it could be a really minor, minor thing, like why, why didn't I think of that before? That, that sort of reaction. Okay. So, Gary, you said that coffee shops don't work out insights, but uh, as an Italian, I think coffee is a great <laughs> way to get insights. So, as a small token of appreciation, here's a coffee mug with the logo <laughs> to remember this night and Graham Wallace. Uh, thank you so much, and please join me in thanking uh, Gary. <laughs>